Welcome to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. So, did you go to your high school homecoming? Did your school even do a big thing? It is homecoming season, and in Georgia, it is a big thing. Indicator, where it's greater, this weekend's homecoming dance announcement says to dress to impress with semi-formal attire. The theme is Bright Lights, City Nights. So that's what's happening there. Later on in the show, I'm going to tell you about a homecoming that got a very nice gift from a Georgia rapper. That's ahead. Not only will high schoolers cheer at football games and dance the night away this weekend, in Atlanta, dancing and cheering will go on at Atlanta Pride. Atlanta Pride is one of the country's oldest celebrations of the LGBTQ plus community. It started in 1970, a year after Stonewall in New York. In 1976, then-Mayor Maynard Jackson declared Gay Pride Day in Atlanta on June 26th of that year. Here he is at a press conference. This is audio that was preserved by the Walter J. Brown Media Archives. The city's proclamation does not condone homosexuality. It supports the rights of a group of Atlanta citizens, the Gay Pride Planning Committee, to seek public discussion and legislative action on the issue. Georgia law is very specific in prohibiting homosexual acts, and the city of Atlanta shall enforce that and any other laws we are bound to enforce. Police and city officials, however, will not harass gay people who are not engaged in illegal acts. He was defiant that year. But the following year, Mayor Jackson changed the day to Civil Liberties Day after some pushback. What a difference 50 years makes. This weekend's Pride celebration is expected to bring in about 300,000 people from all around the country to Atlanta to celebrate. Chris McCain is executive director of Atlanta Pride, and I spoke with him earlier this week on a very special day. Over the past 50 years, a lot has changed, um, and as a queer person, I'm really grateful for all of the work that has taken place over these past five decades um, and all the progress that has been made. Of course, you know, we're really proud that the Atlanta Pride Festival over the years has grown to be the largest LGBTQ Pride Festival in the South. And um, that, you know, reflects a lot of hard work over many years by a lot of people. Of course, we still have a lot of work to do as a community. Um, it's a difficult time for many in our community, especially in the transgender community, who felt um, a lot of pressure and pushback uh, because of legislation that's been introduced in our state and across the region. But we also you know, want to um, remember that Atlanta Pride is a time for celebrating ourselves and um, raising visibility about our community so that we can continue to do the work and move forward. So many people associate Pride with uh, June to commemorate Stonewall, but there is a significance to having this happen in October uh, for Atlanta Pride. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. So um, uh, the day that we're taping this, actually, uh, October 11th, is National Coming Out Day. And that is a date of significance for the LGBTQ community because all of us, in some way, have a journey uh, of coming out. And it's a different journey for everyone, but it is a milestone that we all experience. And um, that is really significant in our identities and in our lives. Um, so October as a month has um, significance for our community, 
and resonance with the Atlanta Pride Festival. Um, how we ended up in October is there's a bit of history there that had to do with Piedmont Park and a drought back in 2008 that um, uh, kept us from being able to do an in-person festival that year in the park. Um, but ultimately, uh, a year later, uh, we ended up in October and everyone, um, we got a lot more great feedback about um, the time, the weather, it's a much more enjoyable time to be in Atlanta than in the middle of June. Mm -hmm. And um, so we've kept it here ever since. And we're grateful that it also you know, has this resonance with National Coming Out Day. Chris McCain, you are the executive director of Atlanta Pride. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Leah. Enjoyed talking with you. I'm going to take you from pride to pride of another kind right now. Imagine yourself in a black and gold patterned above the knee fitted dress. It's got long sleeves and a teal ostrich feather trim on one of the shoulders. If that's not for you, how about a metallic gold pantsuit with some fancy zhuzh on the front? Well, if you can imagine that and yourself in that, then you are experiencing the fashion of the House of Mannequin, where life is created. The fashion is created by Quayshawn Williams. Quayshawn is part of the Atlanta Sustainable Fashion Week that's going on in Atlanta over the next few days. You may have seen him on Next in Fashion. I know I did. He was a contestant on the reality show, and he is the founder of House of Mannequin. And right now, Quayshawn has, I am blessed in the background of his Zoom and is with us right now. We are feeling blessed to have you with us. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm blessed to be here. So your journey, it's um, really inspiring to me, and that's why I wanted to share it with everyone. Your arrival to your calling, it, it came with some painful moments like bullying in school, a desire to play sports, but that was not exactly available to you. And all of this comes from the fact that your body was made uniquely different, specifically uh, your yeah. arm. And I'm wondering if you'll tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. So um, during birth, um, injury had occurred to my left arm and causing nerve damage that affected uh, the growth of my left arm. Um, the, the, the nerve damage that occurred was in my neck and in my shoulder area. So that... Um, stunted the growth of my arm. Um, I lost um, mobility in my fingers and ability to be able to use my fingers and just be able to use my, my left arm in a way that I'm able to use my right arm. Yeah. So eventually you discovered fashion um, in school and were you called the fly guy, if I recall? <laughs> yeah, they called me Flyboy Quay. Um, <laughs> And I, it's it's so it's so interesting when I when I talk about my fashion journey because normally the story is people become interested in um in fashion for you know to become a career at it or things like that but for me fashion was something that I say found me um, because I was using what I use fashion for was to kind of be like an escapism from my reality and also to kind of hide in plain sight. So being in, in junior high school and going to high school, you know, the peer pressure to look nice, to, you know, paying attention to your details and your clothing, the aesthetics, the trends, all of these things I was introduced to. And I wanted to, you know, fit in. Mm -hmm. And also, if there was a way where I could fit in so good that people wouldn't notice my arm, that was always in a, on the top of my brain was to how can I hide my arm from everybody? Mm -hmm. And, you know, going to junior, junior high school and high school, 
I had more freedom, you know, you get more freedom. You, you know, parents are not picking you up now. I got to maneuver through the hallways. I have to do a lot of different things on my own now. So I started to just pay attention to um, the trends and the fashion. And I started to play with my dressing. And um, before I knew it, uh, people were calling me Flyboy Quay. And I had like this really big chain on. I had (laughs) Flyboy Quay. Um, So, so funny. It's so cheesy a little bit now too, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah that was fashion it was like it was almost like a, a cloak for me um to just kind of like continue to hide if I could just hide throughout school where people wouldn't talk about my arm or just didn't notice it then that was that was the mission so and, and I had I didn't even know that I was cultivating something that would um years later be monumental for me yes yes and so uh, you became a, a designer of of clothing. How how did you do that? Because you know you are actually designing with one arm. You actually cut patterns with one arm. How how did this happen? Yep. Well, it started out first in fashion production. So I started at eight, at the age of fourteen. I produced a fashion show at the Boys and Girls Club where I worked at locally um, here in Trenton, New Jersey, and. That was when we did the show, we had got uh, rave reviews. Like it was like a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. Even one of the encore to the point where we had to produce the show twice that same year. And then I did it for the rest of the years out before I graduated high school. But those were, that was the moment for me where I realized there's was this was something that I could do that didn't require me thinking about the use of my arm. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't think for one second, okay, I, I can't do this because of my arm or um, when, when people talked about what we had did at the fashion show, nothing, nothing talked about because I did it with one arm. It was just, oh my God, you're so amazing. I love that your creativity. I love how you did that. And that feeling that I had was something I have never felt before. And I wanted to kind of hold on to that. Mm-hmm. So I felt like this was a career path for me at that time. I still wasn't a designer at, the, at, at 14, but fashion and creativity and just being able to take ideas from out of my brain and to tell a story. Um, that was something that I wanted to hold on to. And then I just kept on cultivating the fashion production. And that's when, you know, uh, the request for some of my accessories that I had on the runway, you know, to be put in photo shoots by other designers. And, um, I sold my first products, which was some sunglasses that I had put rhinestones on. And that was the beginning. I started to design shoes um, and I had Trina, who's a uh, hip hop legend in the game. She wore a pair of my shoes uh, for a music video. This was 2013. Mm-hmm. And that was when I knew that this was a real career for me. Yeah. We saw you on the um, on the show Next in Fashion. And, and uh, we right, right. <laughs> we saw <laughs> you designing. Um, I mean, yes. You know, what was that like? I mean, we saw we did see you actually cutting and 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 putting together uh, clothing. And, and what was that like? When I when I was casted for the show and I found out I was casted, what I was so excited about was that people was going to able to see me in full action, because when people hear about a guy sewing garments and, and clothing with one arm, it's unbelievable. And it's like when they showed him the type of garments that I create. Like, nah, he did not make, he make that himself. He he couldn't have made it himself. So me being on that platform, I, I had no choice but to show what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and when I got casted on the show, I mean, it was, 
I'm I'm a I'm a very in the moment kind of person. So I was always taking it in and I was just looking around like I was just thanking God for every second to just be there because like all the sacrifices, all the, the tears, the the putting myself through college to learn and, and hone my craft and all of those, you know, all of those sleepless nights got me to to that point to to the big stage and you know, being in front of iconic designers like Donatella Versace and um supermodels like Gigi Hadid. And to have them critique my work and, and tell me ways that I can improve and to grow, it's just, it was just, it was iconic. It was, it was like, I still think about it like, wow, I really did that. So, you know, um, you are part of this sustainable fashion week that's happening. You're going to do a fireside chat. Do you actually think about sustainable when you're designing your things? Sustainability, yes. Sustainability is definitely um, always a topic of conversation whenever I am creating because sustainability is so is so vital right now. We don't even understand how much we as human beings affect the world just to have um, physical luxuries. Mm-hmm. And fashion itself is, is, is it really takes a the earth takes a big hit to produce some of the most beautiful garments that we see that hits the runway. And, they, and, and they're very beautiful. However, some of the methods, a lot of the methods that are used to create these garments are just harmful for the earth. And once I started to understand what actually is happening between um, production and, and the fashion industry in general, and you know how how important you know how important it is for us to be sustainable. I started to you know implement different ways. <clears throat> um, so some of the ways that I implement sustainability into my brand is upcycling. So personally, I love vintage shopping, and I do a lot of secondhand shopping because I just love to find unique pieces in general, and I love to like rework them. So um, what I do is I love to shop like a lot of different uh, stores. Like it's a store called uh, Fab Scrap where they take a lot of dead stock materials and things that would otherwise be wasted and then they resell it. So, you know, being able to just shop fabrics that are being recycled from previous designers and collections, it also it helps a lot with, um, you know, managing the waste that will otherwise, be, you know, go into waste. Mm-hmm. Um, some other ways that I am implementing sustainability is with the pattern making. So because I do a lot of one-of-one garments, it's easier for me to gauge how many yardages I'll need per per garment that I'm creating. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to reduce the amount of waste that is actually, you know, compiled after making a garment. Mm-hmm. And once I started to, you know, be mindful of the pattern making process and the cutting and the laying out the pieces on the fabric and intentionally doing that, the, 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 the amount of fabric has reduced so much as far as like the leftovers. So, you know, a lot of us want to look good uh, every day, yeah. but we don't live in the fashion world. So we don't, you know, I mean, you know, you're wearing, you're wearing something that's glittering around your neck. That is beautiful. Is yeah. that a, uh, those diamonds? Or something. Yeah, it's dying. Oh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> a birthday, it's a birthday gift. <laughs> a little, oh, okay. Just some diamonds, you know. You showed up in a, <laughs> some diamonds. And yeah, yeah. Looking just gorgeous. So anyway, a lot of us want to look good every day. But we are working, you know, in, in the real world. And we've got to get ready and get out the door. So what would you recommend we wear? Like, what is a piece that we can look, you know, we can look fly in? Well, what I always tell 
clients or people whenever they ask about like suggestions about their wardrobe mm-hmm. um the best thing I, like i always say aside from um shopping secondhand or, or vintage shopping great ways is uh it's a lot of services that allows you to rent clothing as well and i mean i hate to say it but i'm going to say it too but the fast fashion we got to kind of like chill out on a fast fashion because you know, it's fast fashion mm-hmm. and a lot of garments aren't made of the highest quality. So they're not going to last as long too. So, you know, sometimes if you're able to, if you, you know, you're, you have the, the disposable income to invest in quality garments that will um, last over time. That's something that I would recommend as well that you can constantly repeat and wear. Quayshawn Williams is a fashion designer and founder of the brand Mannequin. And we thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I'm so grateful. A new study shows that despite the challenges of life, Gen Z is basically optimistic about their future. Just ahead, Hidden Brain Shankar Vedantam shares some thoughts on that and how to be grateful. That's coming up on Georgia and Play. listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. So you know, it is so easy to look at younger generations of people and to say, what are you complaining about back in my day? And then you go on to fill in the blank. Well, maybe you're like me and thinking that after the pandemic, though, my perspective changed on Gen Z. To think about it, if you're Gen Z, you're about 26 years of age or younger. And, you know, that generation has lived through quite a bit, a pandemic, social media that is so intense that it's given way to the phrase doom scrolling. So if you are a Gen Z, you've definitely lived through some things. All of us have, but you've lived through it at at such a, a poignant time of life. A study was done recently by Gallup, which finds that a smaller share of Gen Z is living their best life compared to millennials did at the same age. It also finds that Gen Z is less likely to describe their mental health as excellent. So what do you think about that? Researchers, uh, they surveyed more than 3,000 people that are aged 26 down to 12. Here to share his thoughts on this research And a little bit more is a voice that's very familiar to you, especially if you are a public radio nerd. Shankar Vedantam is the host and creator of the NPR show Hidden Brain, which GPB brings to you on Sundays. Hi, Shankar. Hi, Leah. So glad to be here. What is going on with our young people? And also, I want to mention, you have a daughter, and is she in that age range? (laughs) <laughs> yes, my daughter's a senior in high school, so she is uh, she's a teenager right now. Okay, so she has lived through this and you've watched her go through this period. So yeah, what is going on with our young people? Well, let's step back for a second and just say that, you know, there's been a lot of research that's been done on this, but some of the research I think is potentially a little confusing. Uh, there clearly are signals that more young people are reporting higher rates of anxiety and depression. Uh, the new survey, this was a self-reported survey by the folks at Gallup, where they surveyed you know, 3,000 plus Americans and said, you know, how do you feel about your life? 
Um, and so there were certainly higher rates where, you know, among uh, younger people, millennials and, and Gen Z, uh, reported far more people reported that uh, they were, their mental health was poor uh, compared to people who are, you know, Generation X or baby boomers or, or older people. Um, and this is cause for concern, but it's not entirely clear what this means. Um, is this because rates of anxiety and depression are rising? Is it because we are doing a better job diagnosing anxiety and depression? Is it because there are cultural changes that are making it more acceptable for people to come forward and talk about anxiety and depression? Are we actually doing something that is damaging the, the brains of, of young people? Any and all of those theories have been advanced, and there's been much debate in, in recent months. Mm -hmm. So no matter what age range you are in, um, I think all of us have have had some some mental health challenges from time to time, especially since we've all lived through a once in a hundred year pandemic, and we are all living with social media and 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 looking at that. And I'm wondering uh, what kinds of things can we do to improve our our mental health right now? Yeah, so I think the the factors you identified are factors that multiple people have said could be behind uh, the rise of uh, you know mental mental disorders and anxiety and depression. The pandemic clearly has thrown a, a wrench into the works in terms of how our brains operate uh, for many for many months, sometimes as much as two years. You know, we were living in significant isolation. We weren't able to see friends and family. It clearly has played a, a terrible role, especially in the lives of young people who are deprived of uh, going to school and hanging out with their friends and forming social bonds and social connections. People have also speculated about uh, you know, the decreased role of sleep that people have said that young people are getting less sleep than they used to. Uh, there are other people who say that social media is is part of the problem and that when you're scrolling through, you know, Instagram or or your other social media feeds, you're constantly confronted by what other people are doing. And it produces a sense of FOMO, the fear of missing out, that you're worried constantly that you're out of the loop. Mm -hmm. um, and young people are also going through a lot of stress. It's a stressful time. You know, we've we've come through a very complicated you know, economic time and the outcome is not entirely clear right now. So there are a lot of potential drivers why people might be feeling anxious um, and, and depressed. I think there are a number of things that people can do to try and address this. I think the first is to seek help, you know, speak to a counselor, speak to a parent. Uh, it probably is a good idea to scale back on, on social media, try and get a little bit more sleep, try and get more exercise and, and eat right. I mean, some of the basics in that we can all do to le lead healthier lives are probably going to be good for our mental health as well. Try and reduce the amount of stress. You know, don't look at your phone and do a lot of screen time right before you go to sleep. All of these are sort of fairly basic, practical tips that I think all of us can follow to have better mental health. Mm. And one of my favorites, and I've heard you speak on this, is gratitude. And I have a friend, she does a gratitude um, journal where she'll tick off all of these things at the end of the day that she's grateful for. And at first, when she was telling me about that, I wasn't sure, you know, what that would do, especially if you mm -hmm. are uh, really struggling with, you mm -hmm. know, anything, finances or, you know, you're dealing with a tough relationship. And then to be writing out what you're grateful for. But I've heard you talk about mm. this, uh, doing writing and talking about being grateful, even when you don't feel like you have anything to be grateful for, and it can actually change your outcome. Yes, I think it can. And I, I want to tell you three things that I think are germane here. And they all have in different ways to do with, with the question of how we see the good times and bad things, how we see the good things and the bad things in our lives. 
Um, some time ago, we featured the Stanford psychologist Laura Karstensen in a Hidden Brain episode called The Best Years of Your Life, mm-hmm. where she found that paradoxically, people who are older often have you know, better, uh, higher levels of happiness than people who are younger. And in some ways, this is contradictory because most of us believe that, you know, when you're, when you, when you're over the age of 40 or 50 or 60, you know, your life is over. Mm-hmm. But the, the empirical research actually shows that people get happier. And one of the reasons I think people get happier is that they're better able to appreciate what it is that they have in their lives. They're paying more attention to their close friendships, to their relationships, to their successes in their careers, to the satisfactions they get from work. And this is an enormous source of, uh, it buttresses us, it buttresses our mental health and buffers us from the from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Um, a second important idea comes from um, Tracy Dennis Tawari, who's a psychologist we featured in an episode called A Better Way to Worry. <laughs> and one of the points that she makes is that anxiety in itself is not a disorder. Uh, anxiety is a signal that the brain sends us that something is wrong. In fact, we we need anxiety to be able to function well in our lives. And one of the things that we sometimes do is that we overinterpret anxiety. And every time we see anxiety, we say, well, this must be a disorder. And one of the things that Tracy Dennis Tiwari, who is a clinician as well as a researcher, one of the things she says is that it's important to distinguish between what you might call healthy levels of anxiety, which in fact are functional and useful, and unhealthy levels of anxiety where it spills over into disorder. But sometimes I think in our in our common cultural language, we've come to describe all forms of anxiety as a disorder. And in some ways that's problematic. But to speak specifically about the question of gratitude, one of the things that we did on the Hidden Brain team a couple of years ago is we started a spin-off show called My Unsung Hero. It's a short-form gratitude podcast. It airs on NPR on All Things Considered, usually Monday afternoons. Mm-hmm. And it, it recounts a small story where people come forward and say, they describe a time in their lives when someone came to their assistance. Collectively, I think what this does is it does something that runs counter to what I think all of us are absorbing from the culture every day, which is that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, you only have to turn on the news to see all kinds of ways in which the world is going wrong. You know, you have wars and pestilence and pandemics and people fighting with one another and partisanship and polarization and disagreements and debates. And all of this collectively has a sense, you know, we get the sense that, my God, things are really going from bad to worse and from worse to even worse. And I think what gratitude does is it focuses us on the things in our lives that are going well. I think one of the problems is when we have this very steady diet of bad news, we come to think that everything in the world is about bad news. And I think focusing on moments of gratitude, asking ourselves, what do I have to be grateful for? What are the good things that happened to me today? How can I thank the people who have been good to me and kind to me? Mm-hmm. It makes us realize that, that in fact, there are profound amounts of of heroism and kindness in the world. Yes, the bad stuff is out there. The bad stuff we have to write about, especially as journalists and as as news organizations, we have to cover the bad stuff. But the bad stuff is not all there is. In fact, there are tremendous amounts of kindness and, and courage that we see in our world today. And gratitude in some ways fills out the picture of the world so that we're seeing a more complete picture. Mm. So you use science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior. This is what's been written about about you and and about Hidden Brain. It shapes our choices and uh, directs our relationships. So I'm wondering, what have you learned about us as humans that uh, surprises you or that really helps you uh, feel good about the human race? 
<laughs> you know, one of the things that's worth thinking about is that our brains are really the product of many millions of years of evolution. Uh, and so our brains come to us uh, shaped and sculpted by the challenges that our ancestors faced. And so in some ways, our brains are very well designed to solve the problems of, of humans who lived 50,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago, 70,000 years ago. And if you cast your mind back to what humans you know, in prehistoric times were dealing with, they were often dealing with unexpected threats, with disaster, with challenges, with predators. There was danger lurking around every corner. And so our brains in some ways are exquisitely designed to pay attention to threats and danger. And of course, this is a very useful thing. Uh, if our ancestors didn't pay attention to the predators that were lurking around the corner, mm -hmm. you know, those those people didn't become an those people didn't become our ancestors because they got eaten by the predators. So it was very functional in some ways to have a very heightened sense of threat and anxiety. Unfortunately, in our modern world, our brains have, as I said, they are the result of these evolutionary forces. And as a result, I think we are excessively focused on the things in our world that are wrong. So your daughter and her friends, um, are they optimistic about their lives? You know, I think when you look at the Gallup survey that uh, that we, we started this conversation talking about, mm -hmm. it, the odd thing is that significant numbers of young people, in fact, are optimistic about their lives. I mean, many people say, I, I do think I'm looking forward to my life. I think my life is going to be great. There's also a great deal of uncertainty. You know, you don't know where you're going to be able to, you know, what kind of job you're going to get when you graduate. What kind of profession should I take? What kind of career should I choose? So there are anxieties and stressors, but I think overall, the data seem to suggest that young people are not in a, you know, they're not sunk in, in despair where they're saying, you know, nothing in our lives is ever going to go right. Even if you look at the most recent survey that you cited, this Gallup survey, I think some something like three in four young people say they're looking forward to their lives, that in fact, they have much to look forward to. I certainly hope my daughter and, uh, and her friends are, are in that group. Uh, that's what I hear. All right, Shankar Vedantam, you are the host of Hidden Brain, uh, the radio show and the podcast, and you have written uh, some books as well. And uh, we thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Leah. It's been a pleasure. Hip-hop is celebrating 50 years, and while its origins are in New York, the South's got something to say. We talked to journalist Sonia Murray on covering hip-hop in Atlanta. Stay with us for that. It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. I'm sure you've heard by now that the hip-hop genre of music is celebrating 50 years. While the genre was born in New York City, Atlanta has made several contributions. GPB Sonia Murray has covered the hip-hop scene in Atlanta for many years through her work with other media outlets. She just wrote an amazing piece for the AJC. She joins us now to share some of her memories of the Atlanta music scene. Hey, Sonia. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. So how did you get into reporting on the hip-hop scene in Atlanta in the first place? It was uh, by accident, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, in short, um, I was already at the paper as a business writer. And as the youngest business writer on staff, they we used to have these continuing education sessions, and they would ask, you know, talk about different things that were happening in the industry, and they asked me to lead one on attracting younger readers because obviously the paper, <laughs> <laughs> all of us are about attracting younger audiences. So they just said, hey, she's the youngest person on staff. What do you think? And it's not like I did something particularly 
researched or something like that. I just said as a music fan, well, why aren't we writing about these people that are right here in Atlanta? Like at that point, TLC, Criss Cross, Arrested Development, all of these people had just started. And I was like, well, why aren't we writing about these people? And literally like within a week later, I had the same discussion with the features department. And again, it wasn't some presentation like, hey, these are the d you know, statistics and so on. It was just my thoughts. And I think within a month I had the job. Mm. So a lot of people think of hip hop as something that started, of course, in New York City and blossomed out to the West Coast. But the South has something to say. <laughs> what ha mark has Atlanta made on the scene? You talked about so many artists, including Jermaine Dupree. Correct. I mean, what mark? It continues to have its mark. You can just start from right now as of yesterday, according to Big Boy on his <laughs> social media. But I mean, it's it started a long time ago, even before TLC and so on, there were local artists here who were as enthusiastic about and, and did as much rapping as, as people today. So it, it, it continues to be on the charts in terms of sales and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, recently we talked to Dallas Austin, uh, a big time uh, music producer, and we had him on the show. And one of the things he said is that Atlanta uh, has something that other markets don't have, and that is that sense of community, you know, that piece up, eight town down, remember all of that? <laughs> I'm taking you back now. I was about to say, did you really just say piece up, eight town down? Where am I? <laughs> but he talked about that, that right. sense of community, correct, and correct. Um, there was a time you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that. Still. So, still, right, right. I won't tell you where I was just two days ago and heard it when I walked in to, to get some food for my mom, so yes, I, you're right. Yeah, talk about that sense of community. Is that is that unique? You think? I I think it is. I don't think there's any, and I and because you're in it, you don't really see how unusual it is until you talk to people who are you know in other markets. Mm -hmm. But I not only do you know, I mean, I know Dallas because he also went to high school with a friend of mine that I've known since eighth grade. So there's there's a, literally that community. Like I didn't know that he went to MB Collins until like way later. But Joy and I, who went to MB Collins whose father had Cisco's on Camelton Road. It's, it's that connection. Like, I, I can, you can mention a name, and I can tell you where they went to high school. I might have met their parents, mm -hmm. so on. It's, it's really that small, but there's that kind of community that they have. I mean, Jermaine and, and Dallas just opened something in Underground this past week or so. Um, again, friends since for decades now, so that speaks to the community as well. Mm. Now, you've reported on uh, some of the moments that really did put Atlanta on the map, hip-hop-wise, like the moment at the 2004 Grammys when Outkast actually won for Album of the Year. What was that moment like? Amazing. I mean, it was just fun that I got to spend the whole week out there. But that particular night, because everybody thought they were going to win for um, Hey Ya. I oh, think yes. it was a record or single of the year. Mm -hmm. And it was like, when they, when they didn't win for that, everybody was like, what's going to happen? Then they won Album of the Year. So it was like, well, no, they didn't get that, but they got the biggest prize. And then the parties afterwards, it, I mean... People don't know, but that was also the same night that Dre decided, you know, backstage that he wasn't going to rap anymore. Like, that really that really is a story that really didn't come out. But, like, backstage at the Grammys, he was like, I'm, I'm done. It's kind of like speaks to why he doesn't really participate now. He made that decision that night. Oh, wow. That was a big night. Yes. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I didn't know when I went to the after party, everybody's dancing on sofas and whatnot and Later on, I found out that he he went backstage when he was with kind of like the inner circle. That's when he told them that. Mm. So you were able to um, tell the stories of people like Afeni uh, Shakur, the late rapper Tupac's mother. What was that like to tell that story? 
honestly, it, it hurts me to hear late we, t- to this day. She was immediately affect affecting. Like, if you know how powerful, it, you know, Tupac was as a rapper and, and activist and, and actor, mm-hmm. like, you can see it immediately in his mother. And when I first met her, honestly, I was a little afraid of her mm-hmm. because she was, like, um, I, I write in the story, she was smoking a lot, kind of, like, chain-smoking, and, and she was crying a lot. It was a really, em- like, immediately emotional interview because she was, her son was in jail, and she was upset, and she loved the song, but at the same time was dealing with a lot, so... It w- I'm so glad I got to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of your favorite hip-hop tracks, we have got to talk about that. <laughs> uh, do you actually have one all-time favorite? No. No. Of course. I mean, it, it depends on the day. It depends on mm-hmm. the moment. Uh, but there are so I would like to know your favorite hip-hop tracks, honestly. But in terms of mine, I mean, I, I, I it's the usual suspects. I mm-hmm. love Jay-Z. I love Big. I love Outkast. It, it sounds like I'm rooting for the home team, but the home team is great. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot. I mean, be it uh, the moment, if it's like you go into a game and you hear a ludicrous song, or uh, oh there's, I mean, it depends on the moment. It depends on the place. But I, I would say uh, the usuals, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. Big, Outkast. Uh-huh. Gosh, <laughs> I mean, Lauren Hill. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's on tour now. Yeah, She's well, she's getting ready yeah. to go on tour. Well, that's a scary subject, but okay. <laughs> okay, she's on tour. Great. <laughs> no, and, and Missy, gosh, somebody else who lives here in Atlanta, but i that's actually one of the artists I've never actually ever met. It's kind of weird, and she lives here. She actually lives near or has a house here near one of my friends, but I've never met her, never interviewed her, and I'm a huge fan. Yeah, she would be great to talk to. Absolutely. Uh, what about today's artists? Are there is there anybody that stands out for you? <laughs> You're, you're frowning. <laughs> <laughs> the music is so different now. It it is different, but at the same time, I I I see the enjoyment in what people love about Cardi B. I, I mean, just beyond her. I mean, she's good, uh, you know, in terms of an artist. But I I mean, I love a lot of the women that Megan The Stallion. I mean, for various reasons, what they're putting on record, but also what they're doing in their business acumen. There's there's so much more to admire about artists today rather than in addition to what they're doing on record. All right. Well, Sonia Murray is a journalist with GPB now, and we thank you so much. Thank you for the time. Coming up, we will make you go bananas. We are talking about the popular Savannah baseball team that just unpeeled their schedule for next year. I know you got that. We'll bring it to you after the break. This is Georgia in Play. You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Earlier this week, I was talking to Mary Lynn. She's our vice president of news here at GPB. And we pretty much peeled back the layers of our mature adult selves, and we dissolved into childlike laughter over the Savannah Bananas. Have you heard about them? They are literally getting as much play as the Atlanta Braves. Here is some audio of what a game sounds like. He faces, so the extra hitter for the Bananas goes down into a full split. Vincent Chapman has to get lower than he's ever been before. Oh, he's off for the races. Oh my goodness gracious. Some flashing lights, a little paparazzi show. Who are you wearing? Dolce Banana. Wow, little Dolce Banana from Tanner Thomas. 
The Savannah Bananas are now taking their show on the road. 84 games of banana ball will go down in 26 cities across the country. This is great news for their giant fan base. Here to talk more is GPB's Benjamin Payne. Benjamin, you have been following the Bananas' meteoric rise to fame over the last few years. They're an exhibition team. They're pretty much like the uh, Harlem Globetrotters, you know, like how they are to basketball. They they are a, an exhibition team. They combine like theater and comedy with athleticism. Um, tell us more about who are the Savannah Bananas. Yeah, so like you said, they're an exhibition team. They're often compared to the Harlem Globetrotters. So they're known for their trick plays, uh, their dance routines. They've really caught on on social media, particularly TikTok, uh, which um, they actually have more followers on TikTok than any other major league baseball teams, even like the New York Yankees, Boston Red Sox, Atlanta Braves. Um, so that's really how they have spread in popularity is is through these kind of ridiculous routines you'll have. I mean, everyone gets in on it, uh, not just the players, but the umpire. He is a phenomenal dancer. He actually twerks a lot. Um, and so they kind of catch on to the latest crazes on social media. Um, they'll you know participate in whatever is sort of trending. Um, and do whatever they want. They add new rules all the time, a lot of kind of fan interactions. The game is also not at all commercial. Um, so if you go to uh, home games, at least in Savannah, they don't have any signage for sponsors. They have a single sponsor, um, but it's not plastered all over the place. And so it's really refreshing when you can't even go to you know a high school baseball game these days without seeing you know, sponsors everywhere. Um, so, you know, not even uh, between the innings, you know, they'll have like these fun little fan games. Uh, they'll bring on, bring fans up into, uh, into the, onto the field and play, you know, some sort of a game, but that too is not even sponsored. So it's, it's really refreshing, uh, both, you know, from uh, the, the perspective of the game itself, but then also the experience of going to a game is, is you're not getting nickel and dimed either, um, Last season, the tickets were $25 a piece. Uh, now they're going up to $35. But at least for the home games, that includes all-you-can-eat basic concessions, so like hot dogs and hamburgers and sodas. Ah, okay. So the bananas in, in this banana ball, they'll be playing in some unusual venues for them, like six Major League Baseball ballparks, Gwinnett County's AAA Affiliate Stadium, and even a four-night Bahamas cruise what sort of demand are, are, are they seeing for uh, these events? It's really unprecedented. We have not seen any sort of demand like this in like minor league baseball. And this isn't minor league baseball because they, they're just in a league of their own. All they do is these exhibition games. Um, they left the Coastal Plain League at the end of the 2022 season. Um, so every game sells out. I mean, for the longest time they have. I, th I think perhaps every single banana ball game has sold out. Um, and that's not terribly hard to do when, you know, they're playing in these smaller venues. But like you said, uh, this year they'll be playing at six Major League Baseball ballparks. But I don't think they'll have any problem filling every last seat of uh, every last seat in all those ballparks. Um, those include the home ballparks of the Houston Astros, the Philadelphia Phillies, Cleveland Guardians, Miami Marlins, Washington Nationals. And the one I find most notable, which is Fenway Park, home of the Boston Red Sox, Fenway is the oldest ballpark in all of Major League Baseball. Um, unfortunately, Bananas will not be playing at the Atlanta Braves' truest park. That might have been the most logical choice for them, but then again, the Bananas aren't exactly driven by logic. But fortunately for folks in and around Atlanta, 
Uh, like you said, the Bananas will be taking the field in Gwinnett County at Cool Ray Field. That is the home ballpark of the Braves AAA affiliate team, the Gwinnett Stripers. And those games will be on March 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. So there have been rumblings for a while that the Bananas will have a permanent uh, in-league rival teams. And I'm wondering, could banana fever kind of spread across Georgia? It certainly could. I think there is that demand. Um, like I said, they've sold out all these games. They are adding a new team. Typically, they play this team called the Party Animals, um, which if, if you're going with by the Harlem Globetrotters comparison, people often will assume, oh, well, the Party Animals are just a throwaway team. You know, they're like the Washington Generals where they lose every game, but that's not at all the case. Um, these games are competitive, every single one. In fact, the Party Animals won more games uh, than the Bananas did last season. So I think that a bit more of a talented roster. Uh, but this coming season, there's going to be a new team. Again, it's fielded by the Bananas. They're called the Firefighters. Um, and so the party animals will actually have some of their own banana ball games against the firefighters is, and, and the bananas. The, the party animals will be sort of the headliner um, for those games. But I would not I'll be surprised if the bananas formed their own banana ball league, um, whether that was, you know, just a local league, you know, in terms of maybe the Macon Bacon would come and join. That's that's another team uh, in the Coastal Plain League. Um, but they also take on the bananas will play these challenger games is what they call them, in which they'll play uh, quote unquote real baseball teams, traditional baseball teams. Um, for example, the Kansas City Monarchs in Kansas City, Kansas. Well, they are just so much fun. I mean, just saying Savannah Bananas, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. And I, I know you've been to the games too. And um, it's good to know that there's something out there for us to enjoy. Yeah. And uh, something else I wanted to add is that. There's a new rule being added next year. It's called the Golden Batter. It's basically a souped-up version of the pinch hitter that traditional baseball uses. And the Golden Batter rule allows each team one chance each game to send any batter of theirs to the plate at any given time. So even if that batter had just struck out, the manager could send them right back to the plate to give it another try. And when a team uses the golden batter, that player can continue to play the rest of the game. That's unlike the pinch hitter in traditional baseball, since that player has to sit out the rest of the game after they're at bat. As for the rest of banana ball rules, I'll just kind of get a, give a quick rundown for people who have not heard of it. Uh, there are a lot of rules. I'll just run through a few of them. There is a two-hour time limit. Uh, batters can't step out of the batter's box. If they do, they're given a strike. They also can't bunt. If they do, they're ejected from the game, which I find hilarious, and I've seen that happen. There are no walks. Instead, if a batter gets four balls, they can run as far as they want before all players on the defending team touch the ball. So what you see is this rapid game of catch, and oftentimes the base runner will make it to second base instead of just a walk to first base. Um, also, Banana Ball uses a point system. Whichever team scores the most runs in an inning is awarded one point. It doesn't matter how many runs they score that inning. It's just one point. And that allows two things to happen. One, it creates the opportunity for a walk-off by the home team in every single inning of the game rather than just once at the end of a tie game. And it also keeps the game close and competitive because in traditional baseball, the score can end up being so lopsided even early on in a game, you know, if a team has a runaway inning and then it becomes really boring. But in banana ball, it doesn't matter if you completely demolish your opponent in an inning, you're still just getting one point. Um, and my personal favorite rule of banana ball is if a fan catches a foul ball, 
the batter is out. So if you're going to a banana ball game, make sure to bring your glove. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. That makes it even more exciting. Yeah. All right. Benjamin Payne is our GPB reporter in Savannah. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Thanks for having me, Leah. And finally, before you go, here's a pop quiz for you. What does rapper Lotto plus Lovejoy High School in Hampton have in common? The answer is $35,000. First of all, if you don't know Lotto, here she is. That's Lotto's hit song, Big Energy, with Mariah Carey on the remix version. Lotto went to Lovejoy High and recently returned to her alma mater during homecoming and brought with her a big check, literally. During the homecoming game, she first crowned the homecoming queen, and then she surprised students with a massive poster board check signed Big Lotto for $35,000. Of course, the small check is real. There really is $35,000 that will go to the school. It's unclear how the gift will be used, but she said she wanted to give back to Clayco, that's Clayton County, for all that it has given to her. And that's our show for today. We want to hear from you. Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen to the program at gpb.org. Our producers are Natalie Mendenhall and Chase McGee. Special thanks to Mary Lynn Ryan, our Vice President of News. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week. Take care.